Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk. Where does it go? This is Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And we're here to tell you about where stuff goes. And I believe Sarah, it's, is it your turn to go first today? Because you talked about Fatbergs last time, right? Oh, Fatbergs. That was fun. And gross. And gross. It was gross. And then I think I ended with, it's not all Fatbergs. Yeah. <laughs> Just so everybody knows, it's not all Fatbergs. But there's a lot of cool stuff to learn, so you should subscribe. But yeah, I think I go first. But I, uh, this is an aside. Um, I, so Marie Kondo is having a moment right now. Yes. This has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about. But I just wanted to mention Marie Kondo because she's all over the news and people keep sending me because they know like I deal with people's stuff for my work life. Mm-hmm. So they like send me all these articles about like the world is the thrift world is overloaded with stuff and and they want me to talk about where where thrift stuff goes, but that's not what I'm going to talk about right now. Um, but I just want to mention Marie Kondo's having a moment. Congratulations, Marie Kondo. Um, her show's, I think, on Netflix. So, yeah. hey, Marie, if you want to sponsor us. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I read a lovely article, and I should, I should tweet it, maybe link it on our website, uh, about mm-hmm. the Shinto roots of her KonMari method. That, oh, interesting. Uh, someone pointed out doesn't really get discussed much and it gives a broader context to a lot of her methods. Uh, and it's really illuminating for, you know, a Midwestern white lady like me. Uh, but it was also just sort of an enjoyable read to give Marie Kondo even more context. Uh, so I will go ahead and link that, but it uh, made the, things she does and the sort of animism involved in her philosophy it, it, it didn't make it make sense it gave it a broader context because I don't think it's illogical I think it's nice to have things that you care about as if uh, they were even maybe alive but anyway I had no idea that's really interesting mm-hmm. um, I watched the, I read her book and I watched her show um, and I was fascinated by her. She's, she seems like she's very sweet and very charming. And I had, I had no idea. And people seem to absolutely love her. Um, and I had no idea it had roots in, in Shinto. Um, I know she's got kind of an animistic idea to things about letting things go and, and saying thank you and stuff. But I had no idea where the roots were. That's really cool. Thank you. Oh, sure. Thank you to the author whose name I don't remember. <laughs> Lincoln notes. (laughs) So Emily, I'm going to talk about hybrid car batteries. Well, actually I'm going to talk about electric and hybrid car batteries. Um, Yeah. So this is a subject that interests me because a friend of mine just bought a new Prius and she's absolutely positively in love with this car. Um, and she, she, it's like her baby. And so, um, I remember years ago when Toyota came out with the Prius and people were pretty heavily talking about, um, the environmental impact and is it really that great for hybrid cars and pollution and what happens to these batteries and it's just going to cause more pollution. Um, so it, I really felt like it was something that I wanted to look into, um, after this experience with her car and I would love to be able to afford a, a new um, hybrid car. I think they're really cool. I can't right now, but it would be really nice to love the environment that much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I'm going to first give it like a very general, super short. There's no way that I'm going to get everything um, intro to what a hybrid car is. Um, and then I'll talk about um, where the batteries go. So when I talk about hybrid car, I'm talking about a car that is um, has an internal combustion engine um, that gets an assist from a battery electric drive. So there's two pieces of this car. There's 
the internal combustion engine, um, which most with which pretty much runs uh, all cars except for electric cars. Um, and then the car, the car itself, the hybrid car gets an assist from a battery electric drive. So there's batteries in the car that gives an assist to the internal combustion engine so that it's not always um, relying on the gas powered internal combustion engine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it switches between the two for efficient um, driving. So the, the electric battery is charged through normal driving. I think the most common seems to be regenerative braking. So when you brake, it's regenerating the battery. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So when I, I test drove a Prius years and years and years and years ago, and that's pretty much how they explained to me that it worked. Mm-hmm. There are other ways, but I think the regenerative braking is one of the more common ways that the car is, that the battery is charged. Um, the cars tend to be very um, efficient as well. Um, so they'll turn off the, the gasoline engine um, when it is idling. Mm-hmm. So there's not drawing power. And I think um, for Priuses up until 25 miles per hour, it's all electric. And then after that, it'll, it gets an assist from gasoline. Interesting. So they, yeah, they're really pretty cool, and they've come a long way, I think, since 1997 or 98 when the Prius came out. Um, so full electric cars, as opposed to hybrid cars, are fully electric. So they are um, just electric-run motors, um, and they charge. And you have to charge these cars at a wall socket or a charging station. And... Um, the most electric cars, um, I think right now, use lithium-ion batteries. Mm-hmm. Um, hydrogen fuel cell cars are not common um, because of the realities of hydrogen, is my understanding. Um, you know, think Hindenburg. Yeah, and- it's it's pretty explosive, is my Yeah, <laughs> that's my, my understanding, understanding of it. Yeah. Um, So this is cool. I was thinking about this the other day, and this is why I was thinking about hybrid car batteries. I was actually pulled up next to a charging station that wasn't there before in Raleigh. I was like, oh, where did this come from? And this couple in this Tesla pulled up, and um, they went and and, um, fueled up their car. They they charged it. Mm -hmm. And I watched them. I I was probably a little creepy. (laughs) I was so fascinated by this. And um, the charging port on a Tesla is like in like next to their lights in the back. Oh, isn't that interesting? Huh? I thought, I thought that was very cool, but anyway, (laughs) so um, what are batteries made of? So most uh, hybrid hybrid car batteries, um, are nickel metal hydrate or lithium ion. Mm -hmm. Um, batteries can also be made of lead acid, but the most common now are nickel metal hydrate and lithium ion. Tesla uses lithium ion batteries and Toyota used nickel metal hydride until it redesigned the Prius a few years ago. And now it's lithium ion. Um, so the making of the batteries, of course, are uh, heavily dependent on mining. Yeah. And, and it does um, cause some pollution. Um, there were concerns years ago, like I said, about the toxic um, and carcinogenic things being in landfills from the spent hydrogen batteries. But both Tesla, um, Toyota, and Nissan publicized pretty heavily and I know Tesla does that they do recycle their batteries mm-hmm. which is good um, I think that because of those concerns and how public it was um, they've come out pretty much saying we recycle our batteries we send them off um, they you know they're, they're they go to specialized recyclers um, who break them down into their original parts like um, nickel the rare earth elements, um, the plastic casings, and these all get divided up and then recycled into newer things. Huh. 
So yeah, the battery. Do they, go, do they go back into batteries or is it just other? They go back into batteries and other things that um, use those individual parts. Okay. Yeah, the, the Tesla and Toyota um, recycle their batteries actually at the same plant is what I found out. Oh. Um, and yeah, it's in California. Um, and so there were a couple, there were a couple estimates of how long, um, both Tesla and Toyota, I couldn't find any information on Nissan. Um, but Tesla's batteries supposedly last 350,000 miles. Wow. I know. I was like, that's insane. And then Toyota's last 150,000 to 160,000 miles. Um, still good i know i was thinking that that's amazing that's really cool um they're supposed to last that long of course things can happen Mm -hmm. but that was the estimate um and then i saw uh, when because i like to look on youtube about what people have to say about this stuff and there were numerous youtube videos of people who collect old hybrid car batteries and use them for power blocks to run things in their houses because huh. supposedly there's not enough power in the battery to run the car, but there's enough to still run other things. Oh, so it's a, a reuse. Yes, I thought that was a, this was amazing. So if they don't get recycled, like these people are actually collecting them and making these cool like blocks of power to power their house and stuff. Don't tell Nick or we'll have... Hybrid car batteries coming out our ears. <laughs> He's going to power the entire farm by the hybrid car battery. My husband is an inveterate collector. He will collect anything. And he'll use like- it. But for God's sake, he will, he will collect it first. So it's rare for me to meet someone that I would classify as mad scientist. And I would put Nick squarely in the category of inventor slash mad scientist. And I mean that in the most loving and respectful way. Oh, he would I love know, that. I'll, I'll let him know because he'll take I, it. I truly feel that he's like, he's like a mad scientist inventor type guy. Like, you know, in the movie, when you go and you see in the, the main character goes and he meets the guy that like builds everything. He, he like MacGyver's everything. I feel like that's Nick. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I'm sorry I interrupted you, but. No, it's fine. I, I, yeah, just an aside. Yeah. And then I found this one fact that I thought was weird. I don't know how true it is, um, but I thought it was hilarious and weird. Um, that the average Toyota Prius releases 20% less um, CO2 than an average sheep. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) 20%. So it's like a, like a lamb. It's a little lamb. (laughs) Right. It's a, the Prius, it it should be the Toyota Prius lamb. (laughs) (laughs) There is a Tesla actually has a cool page um, about what their batteries are made of, which I actually watched. It was, it was really pretty cool. Um, The, I think Tesla has tried, tried to be pretty open-ish about how their batteries are made. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Just, you know, because they want um, to help save the world. So they have a, a and very interesting stuff um, online about how their batteries are made. It cool. was linked on their webpage. Yeah, cool. I'll put that in the show notes. And that's hybrid car batteries. Wow. Yeah. So it's not quite a closed system, but it's pretty close. Yeah, I, I think they want it to be a closed system. Um, I think because of concerns about the batteries going into landfills that they really want to be outward about recycling and where the individual components go. Of course the mining is not perfect, but that's, you know, how you get them out of the ground. Well, and it's also my understanding that lithium is somewhat limited as an element and a lot of it, most of it is in Belize is something that oh, I've is it? read. And wow. 
that could have been incorrect because, but I, no, I think I read it on BBC News, so it, it can't be that incorrect if it is incorrect. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, and, you know, there are concerns about running out. I'm going to grab my phone and double check that. Yeah, um, of course. Um, I think that of reusing is always a good option, especially if you can take the, the individual metal components out and then reuse them. That's awesome. And I, I think lead acid are ridiculously recyclable. Lead acid batteries are ridiculously recyclable, um, but they're just more toxic and more carcinogenic than the nickel metal hydride and the lithium ion. That's my understanding of it. Um, they're, they don't use the lead acid for much of anything um, except like the, I guess there's the lead acid battery that you would have in a normal car to run, you know, the peripherals, but then the entire car is um, run off the lithium ion um, or nickel metal hydride, depending on how old your car is. Right. Tesla and Toyota are lithium ion, of course. And then the older Priuses are nickel metal hydride and all of those are recyclable. Yeah. And it's my understanding that they are heavily recycled. Um, it's not Belize, it's Bolivia. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, they have probably, uh, at least around half ish of the world's lithium. There's a lot of lithium in South America, essentially. I wonder why. Uh, that is a good question. I don't know a ton I know much more about Northern Hemisphere glaciation and, uh, I guess, geologic history than I do about Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, okay. I don't know a ton because I'm not a geologist, but I know a little bit. And that's not helpful for uh, Bolivia. (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, well, it's interesting. Like, we don't have much in the U.S. No, we got aluminum coming out our ears, but... Oh, yeah. we More aluminum than we know what to do with. <laughs> Where does it go? Aluminum. In everything. Yeah, it, <laughs> everywhere. When I was pregnant with Anna, I was drinking a lot of sparkling water. And I was like, oh, no, I wonder... From getting aluminum from the cans, I had some serious anxiety issues while pregnant. Uh, <laughs> and I looked into aluminum that you get from sparkling beverages, and it's not even close to like the aluminum you get in just everyday food. Like it doesn't yeah. touch your daily allotment of aluminum, and so that was reassuring. And then there's also, you know, all the um, deodorant sprays, antiperspirant tends to have aluminum, depending on the antiperspirant you're using. I mean, they're they're starting to use magnesium in some of them, but the aluminum is pretty heavy just because it's a cheap material and it blocks the pores so that you're not. Yeah, I've been avoiding aluminum deodorant for a long time, so. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like Arm & Hammer. Cool. Not sponsor. <laughs> Q sponsor. <laughs> we should make a list of people. <laughs> people we mentioned. Oh, by the way. <laughs> uh, so I today am talking about an interesting tan- tangential topic, which was not intentional. Sarah and I don't tell each other what we're talking about in these shows, just so it's a fun surprise. I'm talking about where oil spill oil goes. Oh, and it depends upon a lot of different aspects of the oil that spilled and where it spilled and how much of it there is, which makes sense. Uh, My interest in this topic or doing this topic for the podcast started with some continuing education I was doing for my environmental health specialist certification. And they had several online classes about the Gulf Horizon spill. And then uh, I didn't know a ton. You know, you see those Dawn dish soap commercials of people washing ducks. And uh, you heard a lot about how big a problem the Gulf Horizon spill was. And nobody wanted to eat Gulf shrimp for a while. 
but the long-term impacts don't make good five o'clock news headlines. Uh, so it's not something that ends up getting talked about nationally. Uh, and there have been some major spills related to oil wells. And then there have been some pretty famous spills from tankers and then occasional pipeline disruptions as well. So those are the three like major, major sources. You've got well uh, destabilization, uh, damage, etc. cetera, uh, ship spillage, and it doesn't have to be an oil tanker. So lots of ships carry oil and gasoline to propel themselves and to function and large ships carry a lot of it. So that's a spill, even if it's not from an oil tanker. And then uh, pipeline leaks and pipeline uh, bursts and damage and things like that. Uh, So the Keystone XL pipeline had a 2018 spill, November 9th, which is actually my daughter's birthday. Happy birthday. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It halted construction on the Keystone pipeline because it was, uh, I mean, it was the type of thing where we had been told and told and told and told there's going to be a spill. There's going to be damage. And then, Hey, there was damage in a spill. Yeah. And it was one of those, um, the, the denial of reality on one side and the, you know, we told you this was going to happen on the other. And, I remember that was a mess. Yeah. And uh, also, uh, there was a, while I was pregnant with Anna, so that was almost three years ago now, uh, there was a major disruption of an Alabama oil pipeline, and there were there were huge spills. And the there was the gas shortage in North Carolina as a result, and people were just in a blind panic and lining up at gas stations and stuff. And it worked out, but I had I had been thinking at, even at that time, like, what happens to that oil? What, like, where does it go? Uh, what happens to the people that live near there? What about the animals? Are there like deer drinking crude in like just like lapping at it or? what like it was it was it's something that like the long-term cycle uh doesn't get talked about yeah uh in the public consciousness in my realm so yeah uh, I i don't know that i it was like oh that's terrible and then nobody ever talks about it after that right uh so oil spills impact the food chain very fundamentally, tourism and travel, uh, the quality of life of residents near the spill, uh, food safety, including seafood safety, drinking water safety as well. And then also uh, there's long-term air quality issues. There's issues, there are issues uh, involving long-term health impacts to workers. Uh, So there are occupational hazards for uh, people that work on oil wells. There were 11 workers killed during the Gulf Horizon spill because the the well essentially blew up because this is very volatile stuff. Uh, There was a major, during the Gulf War, action against Kuwait involving the burning of probably around 700 oil wells. Oh, wow. Uh, And that's both a hazard because of particulate matter in the air uh, because fires are just hazardous to human health. But it's also, there are people that are around these wells and they're at risk because of, you know, fire. Uh, So those are the main impacts. Uh, We're all used to seeing uh, the ducks covered in goop and you know, sad fish in Dawn dish soap commercials. Uh, And that is a major impact uh, when there is an aquatic oil spill. Uh, The oil can get into their fur and feathers and it can keep them from moderating their body heat. It can keep them from uh, shedding water. 
uh, it can affect their buoyancy and it can also get into their digestive systems and coat their inner digestive tract. Oh. And uh, without intervention from humans, like scrubbing them with dish soap, uh, they'll all die, basically. The, the ones that have that major exposure and coating. And it's really not a guarantee that they'll survive if they are helped. Right. Uh, so it's just really immediately ugly for wildlife, including fish. When, you know, when fish are, fish have breathing needs and skin conditioners, like fish feel kind of slimy. They need to feel kind of slimy. It's like an important part of their biology and you get slicked with oil. It's, you're just, your system's not going to quite work, work quite right. Right. Uh, and then there's the long-term uh, ingestion issues uh, and oil exposure issues that are not well studied in wildlife. There's some good studies on seafood uh, and seafood safety in relation to humans and concentrations of uh, things like polycyclic aromatic, hy- aromatic hydrocarbons. Uh, which are a carcinogen, a pronounced carcinogen. Like they're really bad. There's there's mild carcinogens, and there's carcinogens you need a high exposure before uh, there'll be carcinogenic effects. And PAHs are pretty bad. They're not like radioactive material bad, but they're pretty bad. Can you say it again? Polycyclic aromatic active. hydrocarbons. Aromatic. Okay, aromatic hydrocarbons. Okay, thank you. And so there is look at concentrations in seafood, uh, but it's it's the type of thing where you're looking at oysters, shrimp, commercial fish. So yummy, yeah. And I, it seems like those species do tend to be able to, if they aren't immediately killed, process these materials pretty quickly Mm -hmm. but it's it's again it's um you know we're learning of impacts the the gulf horizon spill was in 2010 i think and it took a while to cap it and we're still there's still research about what the effects are for seafood contamination uh but the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons they are metabolized uh the rates are different for different organisms uh, what was kind of surprising for the Gulf Horizon spill in particular is that there were no major fish kills. Oh, wow. I didn't uh, know that. At least immediately after. Okay. Uh, there were damaged oyster beds, um, but some of the oyster bed damage, and I'll get into human remediation in a moment, were from actually human intervention from freshwater diversion. Because uh, oysters don't do great. Well, Saltwater oysters don't do great in fresh water. I, I could see why that would be a problem. <laughs> right. So one thing that I didn't really think about, and I think this should be on a shirt somehow, because I didn't think about this till I read it, but it made sense, is something that comes out of my mouth every, every episode. Uh, <laughs> but there's a little bit of oil spilling out somewhere on the planet all the time. Because mm-hmm. this oil isn't in a nice underground storage tank waiting for us to just stick a stick a straw in it like a milkshake. <laughs> mm, dinosaur juice. <laughs> <laughs> sip it up. Uh, we, you know, we find where the oil is more accessible or in larger amounts. And so there are microbial communities around these small leaks and, you know, small oil seeps and things that already live off of these carbon sources. Uh, So there are already microbes that are capable of breaking down oils, like crude oil, into different components and sort of almost biologically neutralizing them. That's really cool. Yeah. And as a biologist, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, duh. But it's not something you think about. Oh, of course there's oil spilling all the time a little bit that's not human generated. And then when a human generated spill comes along, uh, a lot of the efforts 
people put forth in managing the spills are to make the oil more readily digested by microbial communities or to boost them kind of like a, uh, you know, eating yogurt to help your gut health, uh, you know, adding the oil equivalent of yogurt to uh, a <laughs> spill. Huh. So, I had no idea that there were micro microbial life that actually liked oil. Yeah. Uh, and there are ones that can be cultured so that you can add microbes to a spill to sort of accelerate that. Um, although I will say as someone who's studied invasive species a lot, I'm very curious about what adding uh, cultured microbes to an environment does. Do they, do they die off when the oil's gone? Do they become part of the environment? Are they already there and it's just a boost in population? So I'm sure there's someone doing research about that, but I have not read it because uh, that would take an awful lot of time and energy to find those white papers. But if you have written such a white paper, please let us know. Yeah, that'd be cool. So when oil spills, uh, Oil is not homogenized like, you know, the milk you get in a jug. It's got heavy portions. It's got lighter portions. Heavy portions are, um, when you think of like black crude, that's kind of what it is. And then things like gasoline are a lighter portion of the oil. And then there's also the volatile chemicals. So volatile chemicals uh, will immediately start going into the atmosphere and becoming part of the air around the spill essentially uh so it's sort of three different we'll call it three different weights there's the really heavy stuff the lighter stuff and then the gas gaseous stuff not gasoline but gaseous stuff hmm. uh and so depending on how much space the spill takes up if it's a large space a lot of the Volatile chemicals will become part of the atmosphere, uh, which is somewhat beneficial because those are the toluenes, benzenes, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, etc. The really, really toxic stuff. And having them become sort of dilute in the atmosphere doesn't eliminate the problems, but it keeps them from becoming so concentrated that they're likely to cause a lot of immediate harm to a lot of people and other animals. Okay. Uh, but they're very dangerous for workers and they're also flammable. And so uh, fire hazards and hazards to workers. And one thing that isn't talked about, but a lot of these are also teratogens. So they cause birth defects. And I don't know how much impact that has on animal communities or human communities. I mean, humans are animals, but uh, it would be interesting to learn if there are effects outside of, you know, just our background exposure to teratogens. Because uh, like toluene used to be a nail polish. It's a great yeah. hardener. And, they took uh, it out though, right? Oh yeah, because it causes birth defects. And um, most of the people that wear nail polish are women. Uh, and most of the people that have babies are women. So uh, that exposure was not optimal for mm. us as a species. Uh, and then with the other components, the heavy and the light, uh, oil and water don't mix. That's a truism that we've kind of all understood. Uh, and it will either sort of float in these oil slicks or coagulate into something that they call tar balls, uh, which are just these sort of junky little ball, black balls that they look gross. Uh, and those float as well. And, uh, you know, the oil kind of, it, it depends on the temperature of the water, if it's a water spill, or uh, what kind of soil is around a spill if it's a land spill. 
And then the land spill also depends on whether or not they can create earth dams around the spill to sort of contain the oil as mm-hmm. to how far it goes and then how much it separates into its different components and then how to best collect those components as humans and dispose of them. Hmm. So I'll get into disposal. Uh, there are a few different things that can be used. Uh, a very common way to increase the ability for the existing microbial communities or added microbial communities to break down the oil is dispersants and then also uh, bioremediation accelerators. And so the bioremediation accelerators speed up a microbe's ability to break down the oil and dispersants break up the big oil slicks and submerge them uh, so that they can get to the microbial communities, which are typically underwater. Oh, okay. The dispersants are similar to like a dish soap. Uh, And the accelerators are more chemically complicated than I could really understand. Uh, (laughs) So we'll go with that. Well, if you're in, if you can't, there's no way that I would understand it. (laughs) I mean, you might. I, uh, yeah, uh, generally I have to have you explain chemical things to me. (laughs) (laughs) I still don't understand all the, uh, terminology behind like cameras, F stops and apertures and crap. So there's just certain things that my brain does not process. Oh, well, well. see, we can trade information. I'll tell you about cameras and you can tell me about chemical dispersants. (laughs) Okay. Uh, in in the Exxon Valdez, Valdez, I don't remember how that was pronounced because I was very young when that happened. Oh, uh, I hear it both ways all the time. Mm-hmm. It ju- I think it just depends on who's talking. <laughs> uh, that was a particularly bad spill in that it was very remote. It was in cold water, which is, is uh, it slows down the volatilization of the really toxic chemicals, so they stay around the spill and they stick around in the environment around Mm -hmm. the spill longer. Uh, It was very thick, crude. It was harder to clean up. And then they used to disperse them, but they missed their target. So it was a big old mess. And there's still around 26,000 gallons of oil remaining in the sand in, you know, on the coast because it was in a bay. Yeah, I um, remember that. But there's about 4% degradation a year. So that's microbial degradation by and large. Uh, probably uh-huh. some, you know, UV degradation and things like that. So some volatilization in the atmosphere. But Way a lot of that go, is microbes. Mm-hmm. Thank God for microbes. Right. Uh, there's also dredging. So if there's settled oil in, you know, the uh, bed of the ocean or lake or wherever there's a spill if it's a body of water uh there's also skimming uh skimming so there's there's a very common sort of rounding up of oil that is done on on water when there's an oil spill they send out these big floating booms they're big it's it looks like giant pool noodles basically they're more sophisticated than that but Oh, is that what those are? I've seen those floating, and I was like, whoa. Yeah, and they do look like giant pool noodles. <laughs> yeah, and it's to sort of corral the oil into a smaller space, and then it can either be skimmed off or burned off in a controlled burn, uh, which is a fairly practical way to get rid of something that's that large and difficult to dispose of. Because once you've collected all this stuff, it's... I mean, it might, some of it might be usable, but some of it's just toxic waste, especially if you're, you know, dredging and you've got oil contaminated soil or uh, muck or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are solidifiers. Uh, This one I just read about. Uh, So it's actually, you just pop little pellets of dry ice into the spill and it causes the oil to become kind of rubbery and it floats. So it's easier to, collect you can almost just like pick it up it's easier to skim and it's a lot less um hazardous to the workers because if you're skimming liquid crude the ability to make a big old mess for the workers and on the equipment 
is very real because it's a liquid and a solid can be messy, but it's less likely to completely coat the workers. Mm-hmm. So they, they, it's like dry ice and they drop it in and it just makes like little balls or? I think it's more like solid rubbery. I don't know. I don't want to call them sheets. It doesn't like solidify the whole thing, but chunks. Oh. So it's like a fat bird maker. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and then the the little tar balls that I mentioned earlier on, mm-hmm. uh, those often end up on a beach. You know, they'll the tide will pull them in uh, because they float. They don't really break down much, uh, and they're you know they they're e- they're physical objects that are easy to see. So people notice them versus, say, you know, an aromatic hydrocarbon that's floating around in the air. Mm-hmm. You don't really see that. Uh, if you do see that, let us know right in. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so raking a beach and actually picking up the tar balls uh, can be a cleanup activity. Uh, so that's kind of where it goes. A lot of it stays in situ. Uh, it stays around either being broken down by microbes, it gets uh, stuck in whatever soil or sand is around the spill. You know, if it's, a, if it's near a beach, it will ingratiate itself into the sand, like for the Exxon Valdez. Uh, it, can, it coats wildlife. It's really damaging to wildlife. And then there's concerns about the uh, volatile chemicals in oil sticking around in the species, you know, wildlife and humans. Right. And then uh, some of it is burned off or skimmed off or raked up. And, uh, oh, and then so the controlled burns, one thing that I mentioned, um, it causes particulate matter, which is an, a pollutant, and it's really problematic pollutant, specifically from oil fires, because the air pollution from oil fires often carries those carcinogenic and teratogenic uh, chemicals in the particulate matter. And the particulate matter is such that it will sort of like pierce your lungs, like it it's oh. hurts your lungs so that it can then get into your bloodstream. So it's just very damaging and those fires when they're done intentionally, not as an act of war, say in the Kuwait oil fires uh, should be done uh, far enough from shore that they're going to have a minimized human impact. So like on land burning of oil, uh, probably not a common remediation method. Uh, and I couldn't find a ton of information about on-land remediation. I guess it's just try to dam it up and then collect it, which makes sense. Yeah. It it um it can the a lot of the constituents of oil can contaminate drinking water, and that's a bigger problem with say underground storage tanks because it's such a sort of discrete problem and discrete as in separate and small and ubiquitous in the United States or filling stations just everywhere. Uh, And that leaking into drinking water can actually contaminate the drinking water for an entire community. Yes. For a small spill. Um, That's a problem in near us, actually. There's a whole community area that because of underground storage tank leaks, it is, you cannot drill wells for drinking water. And, uh, they have water provided to them, I think, by the state. I don't know who does that remediation. Maybe it's Department of Transportation. Uh, but they have drinking water provided to them because their water is undrinkable. I had no idea. Yeah. It's not a large area, but it is. there's definitely an area near us that is like that. And there's areas like that all over the U.S. Uh, one little fact about oil tankers uh, there have been at least 9,351 oil tanker accidental spills. What? Oil accidental spills since 1974. And that can include just like spilling gasoline while refueling, or it can be something like the Exxon Valdez where it's a huge spill. 9,000? Yeah. 
what? <laughs> so it's everywhere. I'm just like, what? <laughs> and that's reported once. So. I, I like, I can count like five or six on my hand. Like I'm just like, with 9,000? Yeah. That's, that's insane. And that's a tanker association saying that. So it's not. It's not an investigative journalist. It's not. It's it's an association involved with the actual industry saying that that's the amount, and wow. I don't know that that lends credence to it, but it at least indicates someone who would pay attention to that statistically. You know. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's where oil spill oil goes. I'm still fascinated by this. Um, Waking up the little tar balls and also the making the stuff rubbery. Like, I wonder if there's a use for that, for those little tar balls and those like oil, the oil that they, oil sheets that they skim off. Yeah, I truly don't know. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know if the reaction with dry ice is a chemical reaction or if it is simply it gets hard and brittle because dry ice is really flipping cold. Yeah. Well, in my mind, you know, because part of my mind is a cartoon, like I'm, ima- <laughs> I'm imagining the like these little tar balls are like bouncy balls and like you got to like collect them and put them in your net, like collect them and put them in your net and then like they're bouncing around and it's crazy. That'd be an, that would be an interesting children's cartoon. My daughter was watching a children's cartoon recently that was very effectively both teaching a message about pollution and the water cycle uh, in under the guise of an adventure of trying to find a squeaky chew toy for a dog. Huh. It was very elegantly done. I don't, I don't know the name of the cartoon, but it was impressive to me. So I could see your tar ball story making it to a cartoon. <laughs> there, there we go. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll work on that. Okay. <laughs> In my copious free time. <laughs> uh, oh, reuse corner. I do have a reuse, or I guess, I guess it's just use suggestion. Uh, and it is the use of the liquid from a can of chickpeas or garbanzo beans. <gasps> awesome. uh, so when you open a can of beans... There's the beans and then there's liquid, uh, the canning liquid, essentially. And uh, I think it's the case for all beans, but it's particularly effective with chickpeas that the water that you drain or the liquid that you drain out, it's called aquafaba and you can use it as an egg substitute and you can make things like mayonnaise with it or meringues, like meringue desserts and pavlovas and things like that. Um, It works really well. I've made meringues with it before it's got a very different flavor from eggs. Uh, it's a little tangy. It's, kind of, it's got more flavor than eggs ha- egg whites have, uh, but not unpleasant. And it doesn't taste like beans. It's not something where you're like, oh, I just made a dessert out of bean water. <laughs> Please eat it. Uh, <laughs> you know, honestly, Emily, you're such a good baker. You could tell me that. And I'd be like, this is probably delicious. Well, like, thank you. You're an amazing baker and you could be like, this is made out of bean water and, and mangoes. And I'd be like, that sounds amazing. (laughs) But if I made it, I'd be like, this should never see the light of day. (laughs) Well, I think I have found that it's less temperamental than egg whites in terms of whipping. Uh, So I had a harder time getting it to stiff peaks, but anyway, we don't need to get into uh, baking theory corner, but. It's, you can find lots of recipes uh, for aquafaba uses. And it's nice because you, you get a cooking material out of something you would usually just either rinse down the drain or throw away. I have no idea. That's amazing. Yeah. So what, so, uh, what is a pavlova? So a pavlova is like a giant meringue. Oh. Although they, they can also do mini ones, but it's instead of the ones that are common in the U.S., the little meringue cookies that are crunchy all the way through, Okay. Uh, a pavlova is usually soft in the middle. So it's got a crispy outside, soft in the middle, 
And then it's often served with a lot of fruit and whipping cream and all sorts of good, delicious toppings. And it has to be served sort of immediately if once it's topped because uh, it will start to, uh, the, the liquid will start to integrate with the meringue and it will start to become very soft, which mm-hmm. isn't bad, but the contrast of textures between the crunchy, the chewy, and then the soft fruit and the cream is, is more enjoyable right away. Okay. What's the crunchy part of it? Is it the, the outer, uh, the outside shell becomes crisp. Uh, it's almost, it's almost like uh lady fingers. I don't know if you've ever had lady fingers. Yeah. There isn't any flour usually in a pavlova and the nice thing about aquafaba is it's vegan so if you have people that uh in your life that are vegan and i know there's a lot of jokes about vegan people i'm not vegan i have met vegans that are insufferable but i've also met vegans that are compulsory we live in sarah and i live in an area where there is a tick-borne disease that will actually make you allergic to mammal meat and uh milk and it sounds like crap. It's like, pfft, yeah, right. But I've known several people that will have uh, almost anaphylactic reactions to beef, pork, venison, uh, lamb, etc. And then if it gets bad enough, uh, it, it um, can prevent them from drinking milk as well. Oh. Yeah, it's actually really scary. I... I... I live in fear of the ticks. That's why I like try to wear stuff when I'm out in the woods and stuff um, to keep the ticks off me and check myself as soon as I come in because it's a real thing. It, it, you can actually be made vegan by tick-borne disease. Yeah. And uh, that's something that I don't want because I do like consuming animal products. But should it happen, should it happen to either of us, I'll make us vegan mayonnaise and uh, vegan pavlova. I'm excited about bean water pavlova. It sounds amazing. <laughs> well, an aquafaba just means bean water. So it's not even. Oh, does it? Yeah. It's, it's just a fancy way to say bean water. <laughs> <laughs> bean water. It's almost like people, you know, that say Target instead of Target. <laughs> It does elevate it, I guess, but... It does. Actually, you said aquafaba, and I was, like, trying to figure out how it's spelled. I understand how the word aqua is spelled, but faba, is it F-A-B-A or F-A-V-A? F-A-B-A. B-A, B as in boy. Okay. As in fabaceae, which is the family for beans. Oh, aquafabulous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what our Pavlova needs to be named, Aquafabulous. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. And uh, we will talk again soon. Yes.